There are some uh, moments in life that seem to be just filled with excitement and other moments in life that just seem routine and mundane and day to day. For me, the moments in life that are so filled with excitement is it's Christmas. I love Christmas. So much joy and excitement and energy. A week ago for the U.S. women's soccer team, that time of excitement was, that was a week ago when they won the World Cup. For the early church, the very beginning of the church in, in the first century, when it first started, that was the, the exciting time in life. They shared meals, they took care of one another, they sold the possessions that they have, and they put it all in a pool to make sure everyone was taken care of. And there was such an exciting time with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and they believed that God was doing something really exciting through them. If the early church were a romantic relationship, Go with me for a second. (laughs) Pentecost would be the honeymoon phase of the relationship. It was so full of energy and excitement and newness. And we often kind of idealize the early church. We say if Christians would just go back to the way things were at the early church, then, gosh, Christianity would be so much better. But in Acts 6, the story about how the church started, we see that the early church had its share of challenges it says, during this time at the beginning, as the disciples were increasing in numbers by leaps and bounds, hard feelings developed among the Greek-speaking believers, the Hellenists, toward the Hebrew-speaking believers because their widows were being discriminated against in the daily food lines. The Greek-speaking believers were from Greece. They spoke a different language. They had a different cultural background. They were from a different place. Hebrew-speaking believers were from Palestine, where, where Jesus lived and where the ancient Israelites were from. And they kind of believed that they were the true chosen ones, God's people. And so there was a little bit of dispute, and they kind of saw some discrimination creep in the daily food lines. And so this problem arose and this conflict. Every relationship goes through the honeymoon phase. Right at the beginning where it's so exciting and full of life and energy and hormones and you feel so (laughs) in love and you get butterflies in the stomach. And at some point, hormones kind of start to die down and day-to-day life sets in with its challenges and its conflicts and its unexpected situations, which, you know, Kylie and I haven't experienced that yet. We're eight years in. (laughs) It's still a honeymoon phase, right? (laughs) No conflict ever at all. Uh, I kind of like this quote. After so many years in a relationship, forget candy and roses. The way to your heart is your spouse emptying the dishwasher without being asked. (laughs) I empty the dishwasher. Foreplay is picking up dirty socks off the floor and putting them in the hamper. I love this note. When you had a fight with your wife last night, but she still makes you lunch the next day. FYI, this was not made with love, but I'll still make it for you. In reality, that honeymoon stage is good and necessary, but it can lead into a, a really a more meaningful and deeper place. It can lead into a place of uh, more trust. Um, no longer do I get terrified when I talk to Kylie, and no longer am I scared to share with her about what's going on in my life Um, because there's trust that's built over time because we've gone through a lot of hard things and a lot of conflict and because of that we've gone closer together 
And I don't think my body would have been able to withstand just constant honeymoon phase for the rest of my life. It's exhausting. So when you go out of that honeymoon phase, it can really lead into an even better place. You know, she's not just my girlfriend. She's now my best friend. And that didn't happen when it was all new in the honeymoon phase and the hormones. So sometimes that conflict that happens in life can lead to a good thing. And so spiritual honeymoons can kind of come to an end as well. And it did for the early church when the conflict started creeping in, discrimination, hurt feelings. Daily life kind of starts to set in with its challenges and its routines. And you got to figure out how to navigate all of that. So when the discrimination crept in toward the, the widows who spoke uh, Greek, it caused a lot of conflict. And I want us to get this idea. If you, if you can take away anything today, this is it. You guys can walk out after I say this. <laughs> not really. A healthy community is not one that is empty of conflict. A healthy community is one that uh, knows how to respond in a healthy way when conflict happens. So a healthy relationship is not one without conflict. A healthy relationship is knowing how to respond when conflict happens because it will happen. It is inevitable. So I'm a, anybody know about the Enneagram? It's kind of become famous the past couple years. I'm a nine on the Enneagram, which is called the peacemaker. And I am terrified of conflict. I shut down. I want everyone to be completely at peace with each other and everyone to be completely at peace with me. And if there's any risk that that's not happening, my whole body just feels like a ball of knots. I can't stand it. I hate conflict. This is kind of a hard sermon for me to study because I'm kind of preaching to myself. Conflict is not bad. Conflict is not unhealthy in itself. I love this quote by Ronald Reagan. Peace is not absence of conflict. It is the ability to handle conflict by peaceful means. I I need to tattoo that on my arm. Peace is not the absence of conflict. You can still be in conflict and experience peace. Jean Baker Miller is a famous psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. And she said, conflict begins at the moment of birth. It's built into the fabric of existence. She said, conflict is inevitable, the source of all growth and an absolute necessity if one is to be alive. Through conflict, we change, we learn, we grow, we adapt. And a lot of times, without conflict, none of that happens. So I'm trying to accept and learn Conflict can be good. Conflict can be healthy. The church is not always good at handling conflict. Leaders and pastors are not always good at handling conflict. This past year, that became too real. I uh, grew up Southern Baptist, my whole family, Southern Baptist. Uh, I'm the first pastor, fifth generation that's not a Southern Baptist. Um, The past year, came out that there were over 700 victims of sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Church by clergy and and volunteer leaders. And that had been kind of swept under the rug. 
And that was on top of all of the, the news about the Catholic Church over the years and sweeping that under the rug with the sexual abuse. We don't always handle conflict well. We're scared of it. We're afraid if it sees the light, it's just going to destroy everything. And sometimes it does, especially when that conflict is not handled in a healthy, good way. So how did the early church handle this moment of discrimination, prejudice, conflict? Acts 2 says the 12 disciples called together the whole community of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. So friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task while we will devote ourselves to prayer and to serve in the word. And so what they said pleased everyone and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, the Holy Spirit, together with Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Pumbaa. And, just kidding. Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. Just making sure you're paying attention there. The word of God continued to spread. The number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem. And many of the priests, the Jewish priests, became obedient to the faith, became Christians, followers of Jesus. So the disciples... When hearing about this conflict, got everyone together, said, what are we going to do about this? So there are a few ways to understand how they responded to the conflict I think we can learn from. One is that they dealt with it. They could have swept it under the rug. They could have pretended it wasn't happening. They could have silenced those who were being oppressed and hurt. They didn't. They brought it out into the light in front of the whole group and said, we need to deal with this. That's a good thing. The second thing I have a little bit of a challenge with. Do you see that the, the disciples said, we need to focus our attention on praying and preaching. We don't have time to wait on tables. Sounds kind of like an arrogant thing to say. I kind of had a problem with that when I first read it. That's be like me saying, I am too busy praying and getting my sermon ready to be volunteering at the food bank with you all. Y'all go do it, take care of it. I'm too important praying and preaching. It doesn't sound, that doesn't sound like Jesus to me. So I wonder, how would Jesus have responded to this situation in the early church? I thought back of uh, Jesus the night before he was killed and he was in the upper room and, and John's gospel, he, he bent down and he started washing the disciples' feet in something that a servant would do. In John 13, Jesus says to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You address me as teacher and master and rightly so, that's what I am. So if I, the master and teacher, washed your feet, you must now wash each other's feet. I've laid down a pattern for you. So what I've done, you do. Jesus didn't say, choose someone among you to wash each other's feet while I go pray and teach and heal people. He bent down, he washed their feet and said, if you want to know how to lead, how to be a leader, this is how you do it. You serve people. Part of me wonders if the disciples forgot what Jesus did that night in the upper room when he washed their feet. I wonder if they kind of struggled with 
some arrogance and pride like they did when they were with Jesus. And they asked Jesus, who among us will be first in the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, you're missing the point. Those of you who will be first are gonna be last in the kingdom. If you wanna be first in the kingdom, you've gotta serve, you gotta lay your life down. You have to give up your status, your leadership position. Paul even wrote a letter to the church in Corinth that said, you can have the gifts of preaching and teaching. You can have these miraculous gifts of prophecy and healing people. And he said, if you don't have love, all of that's worthless. You can be a a, a leader and and, and have these gifts of teaching and prayer and all this stuff, but if you don't have love, if you don't have love for your neighbor, love for one another, it's all worthless. I wonder if the, the disciples forgot about that in this moment. Maybe not. Maybe I'm misreading the text. Maybe I'm reading into it. I don't know. Another possibility is that the leaders, the disciples, may have realized that they were just spreading themselves too thin. They have this new community of believers, and there's a lot of people to take care of and a lot to do, and a few people can't take care of everything. And and they realized, because we don't have our eyes and hands in every situation going on, we're, we're experiencing some hurt and some conflict, and we need help. So we need to appoint seven people to step up and take care of this problem, help us. And I get that, especially starting a new church as a pastor, I can't do everything. I can't be in here teaching and hang out with the kids. I can't teach and lead worship. I guess I could, that'd be a lot of work. That would be like the Devon show, that wouldn't be comfortable at all. So I need people like Rob and Kylie to help. I am horrible at graphic design. Kylie does all the graphic design. I am horrible at Instagram. So Joy helps me with our Instagram stuff. Uh, We need help to make sure everything is taken care of. We need help making sure that the needs of the people in this community in here and out there are met. It's not the pastor's job to, to go volunteer at the food bank to go take meals to people in our church who are going through a hard time. It's all of our job. It's a shared effort. It's a team thing. So I wonder, maybe that's what the leaders were saying with this conflict. We can't do all of this ourselves, so we need some help to take care of this problem. Speaking of, I want to be gone next week, so I need some help setting up this building for church. So if anyone would like to appoint seven members of the church to step up and show up and help set up chairs, that would be great. You can talk to me later if you can do that. So when conflict happens, address it. Get help from other people to figure out how to, how to solve it. So in church, and community, and relationships, at work, at home, the question is not, this. The question is not, how do I avoid conflict? The question is, when conflict happens, how do I respond? Because it's going to happen. It is inevitable. People respond to conflict in, in different ways. You have the Seinfeld reaction of serenity now. You have Joey, what am I going to do? I keep trying to get rid of these feelings. Some people experience conflict and they just do whatever they can to avoid the feelings. They 
change the subject, they go do something else, they run away, they numb themselves. I can't stand these negative, conflicting feelings. Some people, I don't understand this at all. I will argue with anyone about anything. I do not get that. But some people actually like conflict. They get energized by conflict and they are weird people. That's not true. That's not true. They're just not like me. Between fight or flight, some of us run. We run away from the conflict. Others of us want to fight. For me, fighting will risk too much additional conflict. So I prefer to be passive aggressive. (laughs) And that is not a healthy thing. So somebody was stealing Diet Cokes and they put a sign that said, Jesus is watching you steal Diet Cokes. And then the person said, John 7, 37, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. I can take all the Diet Coke I want. Jesus said so. Passive aggressive, not always a healthy way to respond either. Gerald May is a famous psychiatrist and theologian and helps us uh, with five kind of practical steps of what to do in moments of intense conflict. He says the first thing to do is to pause, to stop, to take a step back. Stop in the name of love before you break my heart. (laughs) Stop in the moment of conflict. Take a moment, step back. Proverbs 18, answer before listening is both stupid and rude. (laughs) Before you just jump and respond, stop. Maybe listen first before you give an answer. For James 1, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. The first step in conflict, slow to speak, quick to listen. The second thing that Gerald May says to do is to notice. Kind of stop and be aware. Pause, be aware, observe, watch yourself. How am I feeling? How is my body reacting? What are my emotions right now? Am I tense? Am I angry? Am I scared? Am I sad? The third thing he says is to be open. Open to the possibility that my perspective isn't the only one. Be open to the possibility that how I'm seeing things isn't the only way to see things. So first you pause. Second, you, anyone remember? Notice, third, open. The fourth thing, yield. Ah, this is maybe the the hardest one. Yield, to accept what's going on without judgment. Allow that this is actually happening. It's like the picture of being in quicksand. If you fight against the quicksand, you're just going to sink deeper and deeper. But when you yield, when you stop resisting, somehow that's when you're able to get out. It's the same thing in conflict. To accept the current situation allows some space and some clarity to see how to move forward and get out. It does not mean accepting the behavior that caused the conflict. There is a a huge, important difference there. You're not accepting that it was okay what happened, but you're not denying that it happened. You're not in denial. 
accept that this is happening. And then maybe by doing that, we can start to see some clarity and see maybe the hurt that's inside the person who's caused that conflict. When we don't resist and push back and just allow that this is real and it sucks, but it's real and it's happening. It gives us some clarity to step back and observe. And once we have maybe that higher view kind of go up on rattlesnake ledge, you get a lot more perspective. Once we can get up there on the ledge of the conflict and see the different perspectives, see the hurt on both sides, then the last step, then, only then, after this really hard emotional steps, <laughs> then we can respond. And after doing those things, the goal is that we can respond like Christ. We can respond in love. We can respond in ways that communicate the other person is being heard. Respond in ways that don't add to the flame and the fire, but help provide some peace and some calm and some clarity around the whole situation, some gentleness. Romans 12 says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. It's not always possible. And that's okay. There will be conflict that we cannot reconcile because it takes two people to reconcile. But as far as it depends on you, get to the point where we can be the one to offer some clarity, some peace, some love in this conflict, in this situation. Be peacemakers. Ephesians 4 says, get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander. Every form of malice, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ, God forgave you. So as followers of Jesus, when we are confronted with conflict or injustice or oppression, whether it's we are the ones abused and oppressed or we are seeing it happen, we are to be the peacemakers. We are to bring the conflict to the light. And it is not just my responsibility as a pastor of a church to do that. As followers of Jesus, that falls on all of us. Wherever there is conflict and hurt and oppression and abuse. We all are called ones to step in and be peacemakers. To say, I see both perspectives. To find the common ground. To provide some kindness, some gentleness, a calm, quiet voice, not more screams and yells. Sometimes that takes space. Sometimes you need to step away from the conflict to get to that point. That's okay. You don't just jump into conflict and say, well, let's all pray about it and it'll all be okay. <laughs> it's not that simple. It's a hard process. It's a lot of work. But it's how the world changes. It's how God's kingdom comes into this world. It's what you have to do to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said the most important thing, love your neighbor as yourself. That neighbor includes those who hurt you. It's not a immediate fix. It's a long process. It takes time. Forgiveness is not an immediate thing. You can't just get hurt. Flip a switch and say, I forgive you. That's okay. 
takes time. But hopefully we can all get to a point where we say, I, I want to get there. I want to forgive. I want to. Uh, to not be owned by this bitterness and this hurt anymore. I want to let that go. We are all called to actively work on that, to seek that, to pray for that, to hope for that. You are all leaders, leaders of peace, leaders of joy, leaders of love. It does not fall on uh, the person speaking on a Sunday morning does not fall on a person who has the title of reverend or priest or pastor. It falls on anyone who makes the bold choice to say, I want to live my life like Jesus. And wherever you see some hurt, you step in and provide some hope and some healing. That same night that Jesus washed the disciples' feet and he taught them how to be leaders in that moment. You don't be a leader by telling people what to do and telling people how things are done. You be a leader by stepping in and, and serving and helping. And he also shared a meal with his disciples. And every Sunday we take part in that meal as a way to remember that that night that Jesus taught his followers uh, how to remember him. So what Jesus did is he took the bread that was around that table and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. And his followers didn't know what in the world he was talking about. They didn't realize that the next day his body would be broken to the point of death. But when you live your life like Jesus, it goes against the values of the world. And it causes some conflict. And that's okay. And so when Jesus poured the wine, he says, this is my blood that's poured out for you. The way that I've lived my life has caused a lot of conflict. And it's coming to a head tomorrow. I will be killed. But we know that wasn't the end of the story. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And he had to go through that conflict to get to that renewal and that restoration. Sometimes we have to go through the conflict to be restored, to be made new. It's a hard process, it's a painful process. But it's a good one, it's a healthy one. Um, let's have a few moments of, of quiet. Close your eyes if you would like. Sometimes it helps me. You can leave them open. For these moments, let's take a deep breath. Find your breath. Let your body breathe. Simply observe and be aware of it. The word for spirit in the Bible is breath. God's spirit, God's life. Take it in every time you breathe. You breathe it out, his life, his love into the world every time you breathe out. Think on whatever conflict you might be going through. The person, a situation. 
know in your heart, because of God in you, you are a peacemaker. You are love in the world. We pray, God, help us know how to heal the hurt, how to heal the conflict. Give us wisdom when to when to step in, when to speak, when to be quiet. There is a lot of conflict in our world right now. No matter how conflicted you feel, in any situation, in any moment, know this, that nothing at all in the world can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. No amount of conflict or hurt or can separate you from love. If you feel separated, it is an illusion. You are not separated from the love of God. You are God's hands and feet in this world, showing love and healing and mercy and peace and joy and laughter. You are reminding the world of where there is beauty and goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you all next time.